You can, you will, you must pass NCLEX. There is a way to study for NCLEX and I'm gonna show you how it's done by focusing on the core content. Get out your downloadable workbooks. All of the information comes from my NCLEX virtual trainer. This is the best resource I have ever created to help nursing students pass the NCLEX. And during this event, we are dropping the price because we want you to get in the VT and get your nursing license. So get out your downloadable workbooks. This is going to be an amazing class. I can't wait for you to get your license this year. If you're nervous or feeling anxious about anything or particularly in NCLEX, listen guys, we got you covered. Here at Remar Review, we believe in putting faith over fear. God has your back. You can, you will, you must pass NCLEX. All you have to do is ask. You can, you will, you must pass NCLEX. Hey everyone, it is class number three for Remar Nurse University. We are gonna be talking about that pharmacology that you love so much. I can't wait to get into this class. Hey, get your downloadable PDF workbooks ready. We are going to be talking about specifically insulin and oral anti diabetics, the must, must, must know pharmacology information, as well as total parenteral nutrition. You think you know it, wait till after this lecture. And most importantly, you're gonna get an inside look again into the VT going over diets. Did you know that NCLEX is changing? This is the hottest topic right now when it comes to getting your license in nursing. NCLEX is changing, and so you have to be ready to pass the exam now or be ready for these changes. And I'm gonna tell you about the changes every week during Remark Nurse University. I wanna start off by reading a medical disclaimer. The educational material in this video is meant to promote the general understanding and dialogue of pharmacology for nursing students. For patients and individuals, such information is not to be a substitute for professional, medical, therapeutic, or healthcare advice or counseling for medical issues or concerns, including decisions about medications and other treatments. Viewers should always consult their physician or in serious cases, seek immediate assistance from emergency personnel. This is the information that you need that will help you to become a better nurse. However, what's better than this class that you can experience is the Remar NCLEX virtual trainer. Yes, that is where my full NCLEX review is. The lectures are there, the questions to challenge you and make you accountable. You get the physical workbook. I love the 90 day subscription because you're in, you're out with your license. Hey, I am your instructor every step of the way. Now, I put this document in your workbook so that you can read it, but I'll just break it down for you as well. When we're talking about diabetes mellitus, there are 
two, two very important organs that help with the regulation of your blood glucose. And those organs are the pancreas, you can write this down, the pancreas, which produces insulin, okay? And then also the liver, okay, which produces and stores glucose, okay? in the form of glycogen. And so this is really um, significant as well, storing that glucose, storing that glycogen, because that is what helps to bring the blood sugar levels down, okay? And so when you talk about the regulation of blood glucose here with insulin, the idea is that you bring the blood glucose levels down. So, um, Here's a scenario, typically, uh, say you eat a big bowl of rice, right? We all love rice. However, when you consume the rice, it gets broken down, okay, into glucose. And so that glucose is floating around in your bloodstream and it's going to raise your blood glucose levels. So you have the, the rice breaks down to glucose, it's in the bloodstream, your, your levels are up. So the pancreas says, hey, I need to produce some insulin. I need to produce some insulin to help get rid of this excess glucose. So when the insulin is produced, it arrives on the scene, the insulin says to the liver, hey, store some of this glucose, get it out of here. The insulin also says that to the muscles as well because your muscles can store glucose. So the insulin is telling the organs, hey, you gotta help me out here. And so that is how the liver is able to store glucose. It's why it's such a big help. And it's why the muscles are such a big help too and maintaining the blood glucose levels. So it all works together, but remember I've been saying since class one, anatomy is how you understand pharmacology. So um, let's get into now our insulin therapy, all right? So the goal of insulin therapy is to reduce blood glucose levels. It's to reduce blood glucose levels and the normal value of uh, your, your, your blood glucose is 70 to 110. So I have that written down there for you. All right, so I do want to talk about um, the oral anti-diabetics first before I go into the insulins. And so A will be the oral anti-diabetics, okay? So put that down in your box. Also, Remember that whenever we're talking about, whenever we are talking about pills to control the blood sugar levels, this is in regards to diabetes mellitus type two, all right? Diabetes mellitus type two only can take these pills. All right, and so um, if you need to review the different types of diabetes, mellitus, type one and type two, please do so, so that you can have a better understanding. If you're in the virtual trainer, I go over this, um, this specific reason as well in there. So the pills are used with dietary modifications, okay? So it's a, a what you call an adjunct therapy. If you ever heard of an adjunct therapy, it's, it's because it's used with something else, okay? All right, 
So we're talking about the pills here. So there are three, there are three classifications that I want to go into. The first one, very common, all right? Um, they're called the sulfonylureas, okay? Now, these medications um, are so great at controlling diabetes mellitus because they stimulate the pancreas to release more insulin, okay? They stimulate the pancreas to release more insulin. And so we know that that's gonna be helpful in controlling the blood glucose levels, all right? Now, what are some medication examples? I have uh, here already for you, glipizide, glimepiride, Glyburide, all right. So, very, um, very common when I when I when I hear them, when I say them, I know that I'm talking about medications to control the blood glucose levels. Now, somewhere on the paper there, I want you guys to write down. I want you guys to write down the side effects, okay? Because this this was important for patient teaching. All right, so you, you need to know that this class of, this class of medication increases that um, insulin secretion, all right? Stimulates the pancreas, yes, 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 yes. But it can cause weight gain. Yeah, if you give glipizide, it could cause your patient to have weight gain, okay? Um, also, of course, hypoglycemia, because what are, what are these medications gonna do what are these medications gonna do to your blood sugar levels? They're gonna bring them down, 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 okay? And also, because this medication has a sulfur base, you do not wanna give it if a sulfur allergy is present. And so that's easy to remember because the beginning, right, the, the, the prefix are gonna be quite similar here, all right? Awesome, so this is one class of oral anti-diabetics, okay? Now, the second class, okay, the second class is the biguanides, okay? And these medications, there's only, actually there's only one, there's only one that we use, um, but these medications, what they do is they, they suppress the amount of glucose that the liver makes. Because remember I told you, the glucose, it uh, produces and it stores glucose. Uh, so the liver produces and it stores glucose, right? So this medication, right, it suppresses the amount of glucose that the liver makes and the most popular example is going to be metformin. Typically, if you are diagnosed with diabetes mellitus type two, one of the first medications that you will be prescribed is metformin. Very, very common um, for this type of condition. All right, and it is the only biguanide that we use. However, Metformin can actually cause weight loss. Yeah, metformin can actually cause weight loss and a vitamin B12 deficiency. Mm -hmm. 
We also don't want to use metformin in clients with um, liver, kidney, or heart failure. Okay, we want to avoid this um, this particular medication, particularly in clients with liver failure, because we know it's going to affect the liver, right? Um, and so, kidney and heart failure as well are precautions. Now, the third medication that you want to know is the bile acid sequestrants. And typically, typically, this medication is given to reduce cholesterol. That's what it's for, okay? So this is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's an atypical medication in terms of the initial indication of what it does. So it's going to reduce cholesterol, but it also, can reduce, okay, the blood glucose levels, okay? Um, and so especially uh, through the liver, right? So it, it helps to reduce, again, the production of glucose by the liver. And it, it, it's mainly given, I forgot to say that when you talk about the cholesterol, it's given to lower the LDL, Okay, which is the bad cholesterol. So the the medication that that's there is um, cholestyramine, all right, and that is the only one that you would need to know for NCLEX. Okay, that is the only one that you need to know for NCLEX. So easy, easy, easy peasy right here. Um, however, this medication can cause constipation nausea, indigestion. And a funny thing about this medication is that although it will lower your, um, your LDL, okay, your, your cholesterol, it is known to increase triglycerides. Isn't that funny? And so there is a lot of teaching with this particular medication, okay? All right. Now, let's go into our, um, our, our insulins that we are going to be injecting, our insulins that we're gonna be injecting. And so for part B, we're gonna be looking at uh, treatment for diabetes mellitus type one and type two, okay? We're gonna be looking for treatment of diabetes mellitus type one and type two. Now, there are, um, there are two groups, there are two groups of insulin, because that's what we're talking about. The two major groups of insulin are bolus and basal, or basal bolus, right? Do you know the difference between a bolus insulin and a basal insulin? All right, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that a lot of you here are gonna learn some new things to, today. Like, I, I'm just really, you know, I'm really excited to share this information because you may not have gotten it in nursing school. I'm just gonna keep it real. You may not have learned this in nursing school. So, um, but it's important for our state board exams. So we're gonna talk about the difference between bolus and basal 
insulin. Now let's start with number one. Um, get your get your paper out. We're gonna start with number one, and on that line there, you can just put bolus because that is what we're gonna start with. We're gonna start with the bolus insulins. So go ahead and write that down. Now, there are goals when you give a patient insulin, right? There, there is a reason why you're choosing one type of insulin over another. So the two goals for a bolus insulin, okay? The two goals for your bolus insulin are number one, to lower high blood sugar, okay? Um, this insulin is given to bring the blood glucose levels down, all right? And it's typically given um, with a sliding scale. So you give, um, you know, you give a certain amount based off of what your client's blood glucose level is. So this is how you would interact with bolus insulin. You give it to lower high blood sugars um, in general, and then two, you give it to cover your patient's food. This insulin is what helps keep the blood sugar in check when you are consuming carbohydrates because carbohydrates can, they can really raise your blood sugar level within 10 minutes, you know? So if, if your patient is a diabetic, they already have issues with their blood sugar being high and in front of them is a breakfast tray with pancakes, pineapples cut up, you know, scrambled eggs. We're gonna need to give this patient something. And so uh, the, the, the bolus insulin is going to help to cover all of the carbohydrates that they are going to consume, right? Because the bolus insulin is gonna work pretty quickly. So how many times a day is this insulin administered? Usually uh, three times a day uh, before breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? This is when you give it, or you can give it, you know, right when the client has food there, all right? So um, this is the bolus insulin. Let's talk about the two types all right, and they are essentially your rapid acting insulins. So insulin aspart, insulin Lispro is considered a bolus insulin and that makes sense because we know that um, it, it works pretty quickly and we give it with meals to keep the blood sugar levels uh, maintained. Also short term insulin is or regular insulin is considered the bolus type of insulin. And so now we have an understanding of why we're giving these particular class of insulins. All right, so sometimes it goes beyond just, you know, memorizing the onset peak and duration, which, you know, I could tell you guys about, but do you understand why one insulin is more appropriate over another? Okay, that's the deep studying that we're doing tonight. So you may get something like this on NCLEX where you are presented an exhibit, okay, such as this one, and it is essentially a sliding scale. So if you've never seen a sliding scale before, this is what that physician's order will look like. You will have um, a range of blood glucose levels on one side, 
and then you will have the amount of insulin in units to give on another. And if, if this was, you know, a proper prescription, it would say administer, you know, regular insulin or whatever have you. But for the purposes of this activity, um, it's not important which type of insulin. What is important is the number of units that you know to give. So if we're looking at um, the activity, it says how many units of insulin, uh, if you're reading from your worksheet, how many units of insulin, if any, should be administered based on the client's current blood glucose reading and the prescribed sliding scale from the chart above. So the first reading is done at seven in the morning. Okay, seven in the morning. So we have um, the insulin reading is 225. So based off of the client's blood glucose reading, how much insulin do you expect to give that client? Well, the correct answer here would be five units. And so you're going to want to have, you're going to want to be able to do this on your NCLEX exam. All right. So again, the, um, 1145, the blood sugar reading is now 500. So at this point, how much insulin do you give this client? If any, if any, what say if you guys, all right. So um, some answers could be we shouldn't give anything. We should call a physician because there is a there is a, you know, a little letter next to the number of the highest range. And it seems like this 500 is out of range. So what do you do if I'm going by the, the, the prescribed sliding scale? I would give 15 units and then I would contact the physician because that is what this says, okay? And so this sliding scale, this sliding scale here has a treatment for the nurse to do before contacting the physician. And so um, it is expected that you would carry out what is written here and then call the physician, all right? So based off of the sliding scale, that is what is appropriate to do. Let's do the last one here. It says then 1745, the client's blood glucose level is now 122. So how many units of insulin do we give? Well, we should not be giving any, okay? So if you feel comfortable with this particular activity, you will be able to pass this type of competency on your NCLEX RN or NCLEX PN exam. And so that's a beautiful thing because uh, to be honest, I think when I was, I don't, I'm trying to think when I was in nursing school, um, I had not given insulin on a sliding scale during nursing school. You know, some clinicals are very limited, so you don't get to do everything. Like I didn't get to see a baby being born during my OB rotation, you know? So um, I didn't get to start an IV during nursing school at all. I didn't learn that stuff until I actually got a job on the unit. So there may be some experiences that you just miss out on during nursing school and that's Okay, you will definitely learn it in the real world, I promise you. So let's talk about the second class of insulins and that is the basal insulin. So how do basal insulins differ from the bolus insulin? Well, 
The two goals of administering a basal insulin are to provide a background insulin. So background insulin is just insulin while the client is at rest. They're not doing anything, okay? Um, it, it, it's just to maintain a certain number of blood sugar levels, right? So that's the basal, that is the basal insulin. Now, another goal is to understand that basal insulin is not affected by your meals, okay? So it's not gonna cover you. It's not gonna cover, you know, the pizza that you had right away. It's not working like that, okay? So how many times a day is this, this insulin administered? You usually see basal insulin given once or twice a day depending on the severity of the client's condition. And so I'm gonna tell you guys the, the, the two types of basal insulins that we currently have, and that is the intermediate and the long acting. So the, the MPH or um, insulin glargine, these would be considered basal insulins. And you know, usually with the insulin Glargine, the long-acting insulin, you give that at night once a day. Now, I did have a client who was taking his twice a day. So once or twice a day is the, um, is the expected administration times for the basal insulin. Okay, so now you guys know the difference between bolus and basal insulin. And so that can be removed from your, um, from your studying in terms of, let me just look up the definition, all right? So we got that down. So I wanna do, um, let me see here, I want to do two more. I wanna do two more. So the next insulin that I wanna talk about, okay, you guys stay with me, we are learning tonight. We are learning, all right? So the, the next insulin that I wanna talk about is the pre-mixed insulin. Okay, it's the pre-mixed insulin. And this insulin can definitely show up on your board exams because it's really common and there's a benefit to using a pre-mixed solution. So the goals of the pre-mixed insulin is to provide the patient at the same time both, both kinds of coverage. So you can give the bolus and the basal. All right, you can give the bolus and the basal because to be honest, you know, once your diabetes gets to a certain point, you usually need both to control it. So this also will allow the patient to have fewer shots due to combined insulin and instead of, you know, multiples of two kinds. And, and this is important because, you know, your your bolus and your basal insulin might be scheduled differently. And so you can't always give them at the same time. So if your patient can have reduced shots, um, then that makes them feel better and allows them to be more compliant with their, uh, with their medication. So how many times a day is this insulin given? Typically once or twice daily, okay, for that pre-mixed insulin, pre-mixed insulin. Now, what are the types of the pre-mixed insulin and what do the numbers mean here? So um, 
there are two types. There is the 70-30, which is really common. And then there's also a 50-50 premixed. Okay. So again, if we're talking about the premix 70-30 or the premix 50-50, we know that this is a combination of regular and intermediate insulin. Okay. So students um, always ask this or they're confused about it or they just don't quite get it in nursing school. Like what do the numbers represent? What does 70 represent? What does 30 represent? You know, uh, of which insulin do they come from? So the first number that you see will always represent the long lasting insulin. So this is our basal insulin. This is the intermediate MPH insulin. Okay, so that's, so if we're reading the box right now, it says 70% is MPH. And then the second number is going to represent the regular insulin amount. So the box tells you as well, hey, 30% of this solution is made up of regular insulin. So, whew, all right, that's underway. All right, so you guys can see just going over, you can see just really just going over the information first makes you feel so much proficient to answer questions that you will encounter if you're doing a NCLEX questionnaire, okay? And this is the reason why our method at Remar Review is content first and then questions later because it really makes you a more, um, it really just makes you a more intelligent nurse and you feel more confident and well-rounded. This is what you need to pass NCLEX, okay? So the last thing that I wanna talk about is the insulin pumps, okay? Lots and lots and lots of questions, lots of misconceptions, um, you know, or just a lack of understanding about these insulin pumps. Now, what I wanna say is that remember, remember when you talk about the insulin pumps that um, insulin pumps can be used for type one diabetes, type two, and even gestational diabetes. This is a device that is applicable to cover all the different types of diabetes mellitus, right? So what do we have here? Before we talk about um, the critically thinking things about it, let's just go over the administration, the, 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 the parts of it. And so I, I like this picture that I have here because it literally shows you, you know, the actual device, um, the, the needle that's used, the cannula, like this is what the insulin pump consists of. So it is, it is, it is, um, programmable. Okay meaning that you can set the amount of insulin that your patient will get. It is usually placed in the same location that you would do a subcutaneous injection, all right? It is placed usually in the abdomen or the thigh, but it just stays there. It stays there, okay? Now, the, the cannula to deliver the insulin is usually changed every... 48 to 72 hours. And so that's about as, um, that's about two or three days worth of insulin. All right, cause that's, that's all that this machine can basically hold. So you're gonna be changing it out 
about every um, well, every two to three days, okay? And this little device is battery operated. So, you know, thinking about what are the indications of having a battery operated machine, okay? What would it mean for your patient in terms of restrictions? Things that they would have to check for. Whenever you're changing batteries for any type of device like uh, this insulin pump, uh, hearing aids, what else requires batteries that patients use? What, whatever kind of the small device that a patient would use, never, never, never put in cold batteries, okay? That's just, the, that's just the insider tip. If the batteries are cold, they should not be used. The batteries should be room temperature because um, cold batteries can sometimes not function well, right? So they may start off really great, but then they won't function well. All right. So now we can go to the other part of our worksheet that talks about exactly some of the things that um, that we were supposed to think about. All right. So um, it's a small computerized external device. OK. Um, now, this is the size of a pager. This is the size of a pager. Now, the question asks here, what organ does the machine mimic? Well, the insulin pump is going to mimic the pancreas because it is our pancreas that produces insulin. So the insulin pump will now give your patient the pancreas um, function that it doesn't have. All right. So the insulin pump is going to be giving your patient the insulin that it doesn't have. And why is this? Why is this the, the best method for those with poorly controlled diabetes? Well, it's simply because the pump is going to work nonstop. Okay. The pump is going to work nonstop. So there's less of an issue about medication noncompliance because you don't have to do anything. If you wear it, you will get the required medication that you're supposed to. If you're monitoring yourself and you're wearing your insulin pump, the medication should be delivered. So the next questions, the next questions on your worksheet are, should the, the client take it off at night? Okay, so I want you to think about it. Should your client take their insulin pump off at night? What do you think? Also on your worksheets, you, it says, will this machine take the blood glucose levels? What do you think? All right. These are, these are all great select all that apply questions on NCLEX about the insulin pump. All right. And then, um, oh, how many types of insulin are in the pump? Are you getting, um, are you getting your rapid acting? Are you getting your, your, your basal? Are you getting your, you know, are you getting the premix? Are you getting them all in one? How many types of insulin are in this pump? Okay. So these are the questions the students encounter in NCLEX and they're like, what? I don't even know. I haven't even studied. I don't know. Uh, so we're going to talk about it here. Uh, quickly, the answer, should the client take it off at night? No, 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 no. All right, we're gonna keep it on because the pump works uh, nonstop. So if you take it off at night, there is a risk of hyperglycemia happening. Your blood sugar levels will go up because there's no insulin. All right, um, and then does the machine 
take the client's blood glucose levels. So no, the ones on NCLEX, they do not. I did read that they're coming out with some new ones that are able to do that, but for the purpose of our state boards, the answer is no, the client still must take their own blood sugar levels. How many types of insulin are in the pump? Well, you guys saw it. There is only one type of insulin that will be delivered in this pump, okay? Um, and then how often does the blood glucose levels need to be checked? They need to be checked at least four times a day. So that's before every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and before you go to bed, all right? Um, and then sometimes uh, I was reading that people even have to take their blood sugar levels um, up to eight times a day when they're first starting their insulin pumps, okay? So great information here. Um, battery operated insulin pumps. I mean, if you haven't seen this picture before, um, I would really just settle into it. Watch this video again if you need to. But um, this is very important for you to know because a lot of diabetics require, a lot of diabetics require the insulin pump now. Okay, so we studied the content. Let's go over some questions that are found in your workbook. And the first question is this, it's a really good one. Um, okay, the nurse is discharging a client newly diagnosed with diabetes mellitus type two. Which statement, if made by the client, requires follow-up teaching? And all of my questions have been like this. We're looking for the one that needs the teaching done. So number one says, I will use my sliding scale when administering my pre-mixed 70-30 insulin. Two, I will check my blood glucose levels every night before going to bed. Three, if my casual blood glucose levels are decreasing over time, my medication may be adjusted. Four, insulin therapy will help reduce my risk of going blind. So, which statement requires follow-up teaching? In other words, which one is wrong, okay? And if we're looking at these choices, we have to pick the best choice in front of us when we're taking NCLEX. That would be obviously number one. When you're on a pre-mixed 70-30 insulin, there shall be no sliding scale, okay? You have no flexibility. You should not be looking to change that dose at all, all right? So the other, the other choices are all correct. They make sense and they are appropriate for this client with diabetes mellitus type two. Let's look at the next one here. Um, I like it. It says this, a client is initiating insulin pump therapy, which of the following statements if made by the client requires follow up education? Again, now this is a select all that apply, all right? So we know about insulin pump therapy. I told you guys about it, all right? And um, we're looking for the wrong statement. So number one says, I can keep my pump on during a shower, but not a bath. Two, I no longer need to carry injectable insulin 
as my pump will deliver my insulin needs. Three, I will disconnect my pump during my 30 minute jogging routine to prevent hypoglycemia. Four, I will check my battery life often so that my pump continues to deliver insulin. Or five, I can receive continuous and bolus doses of the same insulin from my pump. Hmm. Okay, so we're looking for the statements that require follow-up education. What do you guys say? What do you say? All right, the answers are rolling in. You might have them in your head. I'm going to show them to you. They are, yeah, they are one, two, and three. We're gonna have to follow up with these statements because they got some issues, all right? So number one says, um, I can keep my pump on during a shower, but not a bath. So instances where you need to take your pump off, all right? are going to be water-related activities, all right? Because this is a battery-operated machine. So um, if, if your patient is showering or bathing, they're gonna need to disconnect that, um, that insulin pump. If they're swimming, if they're in a jacuzzi, if they're ski, like any water skiing, um, you, gotta take, you gotta take it off, okay? Um, two says, I no longer need to carry injectable insulin as my pump will deliver my insulin needs. And so this is um, this is a dangerous assumption because there's a there there's a chance that your pump can malfunction, and so you need to have insulin at your disposable at your disposal injectable insulin um, to cover the insulin needs. If your pump malfunctions, you 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 can't go without it, particularly if you're a type one diabetic, right? Three says. Um, I will disconnect my pump during my daily 30 minute jogging routine to prevent hypoglycemia. All right, so you do not disconnect the pump during um, exercises or non-water related activities. Other, you know, any other time of the day, you need to have that pump on, all right? And um, side note, cause I know I'll get an email about this. We do know that exercise does lower the blood glucose levels and so, um, you know, some students might be thinking, well, if exercise is lowering my blood glucose levels, do I really need to have my insulin pump going? And so my, my, my response to that is insulin pumps can be adjusted. Remember, they're programmable. So instead of the client disconnecting or taking off their insulin, it would be appropriate for the insulin to be um, readjusted by the client or the healthcare provider would give those parameters to what to do with the insulin as opposed to just the client saying i'm going to take it off all right okay um and then so the last the last one oh no sorry number four says i will check my battery life often so that my pump continues to deliver insulin so this is a correct statement we don't need to follow up with that we do want them to check their battery life often and um, number five might have tricked some people, but it literally is saying, I can receive continuous and bolus doses of the same insulin 
from my pump. And that is actually correct. Um, you can have a programmed pump that will deliver continuous insulin. So if your patient gets two units an hour, right? That pump will deliver two units of two units an hour of regular insulin, right? And then it also can give you a bolus dose. It also can give you a bolus dose if you need it. So if you need five units of regular insulin because you just ate a pizza that was not on the menu, you know, of your dietary <laughs> menu, then that pump can deliver you five units of regular insulin. But it's the same insulin. It's the same insulin. So that statement was true. I can receive continuous and bolus doses of the same insulin from my pump. Because remember, there's only one type of insulin in that pump. All right, question number three says, again, it's no surprise here, which of the following statements, if made by the client, require insulin therapy, I'm sorry, requiring insulin therapy, require follow-up teaching? So which of the following statements, if made by the client, requiring insulin therapy, require follow-up education? And the choices are, number one, I will inject my insulin in the subcutaneous fat within one inch of my navel. Two, I should check insulin vial for contamination. Three, I will inject my insulin at a 90 degree angle. Four, insulin aspart is my rapid acting insulin. So if we're looking at these four choices, the best one in front of us to pick that requires follow-up education is gonna be number, it's gonna be number one, yes. That is going to be um, inappropriate for the client to do as far as injecting insulin within one inch of the navel because the belly button area is tougher right? And it's difficult for the medication to absorb there. So it'll be less consistent. Um, it should be at least two inches, the injection site from the umbilical cord or the navel. Okay. Okay. We got a whole nother subject to cover. I promised I was bringing you total parenteral nutrition. Oh my goodness. If you are in the virtual trainer, again, you're really going to love this, um, this presentation of TPN. We're going to start by just acknowledging what nutrition is. All right. So you can write this down on your worksheet. Nutrition or aliment is the necessary nourishment to the body's cells to support life. So, your nutrition is essential for your overall health, okay? Now, there are different types of nutrition. So we're gonna go over the three here, and I promise you, you'll have a better understanding of them by the end of this lecture. So number one, you have your oral nutrition. And this chart is for my visual learners. You guys know, um, I, I, I try to, cater to every kind of learner. So my visual learners, you have your three and they're in a tier. So of course the, 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 the most prominent, the one we want the most that we want everybody eating orally. Yes. It's at the top of the list. All right. Two. The second one is the intro nutrition. If you have to avoid your mouth, we can, <laughs> we can 
put the medication directly into the stomach if we have to. All right. Um, but it's not the best um, for the, the, the process. All right. So you have your intro nutrition and then three. It's kind of like the, the final effort, and that is the parenteral nutrition. It can be done. It is done quite often, but there's definitely disadvantages. So let's get more into it in terms of nutritional support. Let's just kind of uh, go a little bit further for my writers and my readers like myself. So if we're talking about nutritional support in the client education, number one, it's, it's pretty simple. For your oral nutrition, this of course is the pre preferred, it's the preferred delivery of nutrition, okay? Um, you're able to get your solids, your liquids, it's very effective and most importantly, it's non-invasive. We do not have to break any sterile cavities, you know what I mean, in order to, in order to feed you. And so this is, this is, this is important, right? So um, this is the best way for somebody to get nutrition. Now, the interol, the interol nutritional support, there's a lot, there's a lot that's going on. So you have nutrition that is essentially all liquid because remember, we're not gonna be putting any solids through here. So if you move out of the oral nutrients, you're losing your ability to consume solid foods. That's another issue. But the, the nutrition is gonna be placed through the nose, the esophagus, the stomach, and the intestines, okay? All right, so I mean, imagine the food that you're eating going through your nose right now. How is that gonna feel? I mean, you know, you have a catheter, but it's just, it's not, it's not the most natural, of course. So you have nutrition placed through the nose, the esophagus, the stomach, or intestines. And some of you may have had this done. Um, you gotta have a GI, a functioning GI tract. In order for this to work, your gastrointestinal tract has to be functioning. And again, if the person can um, tolerate oral feedings, that needs to come first. The short-term methods of intro feeding are the nasal gastric tube, all right? And then if it's gonna be a longer process, then a, a surgery needs to be done where you're getting the G-tube, all right? The gastronomy tube, and that's going directly into the stomach or you're gonna get the jejunostomy tube. And that is the um, going from the, the stomach into the small intestines. All right, and so these are long-term feeding solutions for our clients. All right, enteral, enteral, internutrition. Okay, did you learn something here? Let's look at the parenteral nutrition. It's called total parenteral nutrition because it can provide you your complete nutrition. Surprisingly, you can get all your micro and macronutrients from this solution. And so, you know, that makes it, that makes it pretty effective, all right? But it is only used for, uh, for disorders 
where there there is no GI tract available for use. So your patient has to be on, um, you know, a complete bowel rest. So, you know, examples of that are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. If you're not familiar with these, if you can't explain these in two minutes, each one of them, you got to look it up, getting your quick facts book. Okay. Getting your quick facts book for you guys. Um, you know, you might be joining me for the first time. Quick facts for NCLEX will straighten this, those two subjects out for you. Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. They are uh, very common conditions. Your board exam expects you to know them. Okay. And when we talk about the routes of the parental nutrition, they can be given PPN, which is through a peripheral vein. Okay. Or they can be given um, TPN, which is through the central line placement. And so I believe if we're looking at the picture um, on your worksheet, you have an example of the TPN, the PPN, the NG tube, right? Uh, the G tube and the J Junostomy tube, right? So they're all there for you guys. Okay. Now, when we talk about total parenteral nutrition, because we're going to get more into it here, let's um, let's focus on let's focus on getting the patient started. OK, and what needs to be done, because there are steps before you do this. Remember this total parental nutrition. This is su supplying all of your patients nutrition through an intravenous route. And with TPM, we know that that is a major all right, that is a major vein that that medication is going through. So when you're starting TPN, typically the solution is refrigerated, refrigerated like blood, right? So it comes from the refrigerator, it has to stay cold. And so um, you must remove it from the refrigerator at least two hours before the start time. Now, I, I saw some that says one hour, I saw some that even said six hours. So. Um, you may see a different reference number depending on your hospital facility policies, but the idea is that you want this solution to be room temperature. Okay. All right. Um, number two says gradually initiate over two days. So that means when you first give TPN, you don't give the full amount in the first day. Can anybody think of a reason why you would only um, on the first day give half of the required amount? There's a reason if you think about what TPN is made of, what, what it is mostly made of, right? So the reason why you don't want to give it all on the first day is because you have to you have to monitor your patient for that hyperglycemia. They're going to definitely experience that. Also, you, you want to see how they are tolerating this new solution into their veins. So number two says gradually initiate over two days. So by the second day, your patient should be tolerating the full prescribed amount. Okay, perfect. Three, total parenteral nutrition is a continuous um, infusion that is not usually stopped. So once you're on TPN, it's running. And the solution and the solution lasts it was 24 hours. All right. So it's good for about 24 hours outside of the refrigerator. And you then you have to change, change it. OK, change it and change the tubing, too, as well. If I need to say that. Four, 
The great thing about TPN is that literally it is total. So there are usually no additional fluids that are needed for your patient. So your, your total parental nutrition can provide you the water that you need and it can provide you all the, the macro and micronutrients all in one solution. So you don't need to also hydrate your patient when they're on TPN as well, all right? So the question here about TPN, critically thinking about it, does the client need to sign an informed consent? What do you guys think? If you are, um, you know, if you are suggested for total parental nutrition in the hospital, what a informed consent need to be signed? Hey, absolutely. Yes, this is a medical procedure. This is a medical intervention. You definitely, definitely need to have an informed consent. The doctor needs to do that though. That's not the nurses. You guys know how I get on my hobby horse about this. It is not the nurse's job to get that informed consent. It is the doctor's job to do it. Nurses only sign as witnesses, okay? We only sign as witnesses. Let the doctors do their job. The next critical thinking question says, um, if TPN has added calcium and lipids, should the nurse expect particles in the formula? Okay, so is it okay to have particles in the formula if lipids are added or other electrolytes? What do you guys think? The answer is no, 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 no. Anytime you see particles in a formula, that indicates separation, okay? Uh, the formula is not all together, so we do not want to give that to our patients. We don't wanna give that to them in their uh, central veins, right? So that's not gonna be appropriate. We wouldn't give that solution. Okay, so we know about starting TPN. We critically think through some scenarios. Now let's talk about stopping TPN. What does that look like? Well, it's kind of straightforward when you talk about um, this solution because like other medications that raise your blood sugar, um, and cause your body to respond in a certain way, you cannot just cut off TPN. It gradually has to be reduced so your patient is weaned off, okay? And that is to avoid hypoglycemia, okay? That's to avoid hypoglycemia. Now, um, hmm. If TPN runs out, you guys know that this can be a very common, this could be a very common NCLEX scenario. Your patient's on TPN and it runs out. What do you do? Well, we give our 10% dextrose, all right, 10% dextrose, and you give it at the same rate as the TPN was going. So if the TPN was going um, you know, 45 milliliters an hour. If you hang that dextrose, you're gonna give it at 45 milliliters an hour, okay? Okay. All right, now, number three, 
Clients need to have at least 75% of their calorie needs by oral um, or enteral feedings before stopping TPN, okay? Um, and this is a great transition principle. You don't wanna just stop TPN without another source of nutrition being um, you know, available to your client. All right. Now, of course, anytime you are going to be accessing sterile spaces into your patient, you know that there's gonna be some complications. And so for TPN, there are, um, there are several that I want you to know. Um, air embolism is one of them. And if you got, I'm listing these, I'm listing these complications, but I'm not gonna define, I'm not gonna define them. I'm not going to go over um, the complications individually. I want you guys to look that up because this is med surge. All right, so air embolism. You need to know what it is. I have a picture for you right here, but you need to understand what's happening and what's the treatment, okay? Sepsis, what does that mean for your patient? A pneumothorax, how can that happen? All right, bleeding, okay, pretty straightforward there. Um, and then intravenous access local infection, all right? And that just makes sense because anytime you are breaking um, a sterile field if with something from the outside, then there is a chance of um, infection. And so we got to remember that our bodies, although they're outside, I mean, the outside of our bodies, they interact with the environment. And I'll go back to the slide in a second. They interact with their environment. The inside of a lot of our body is sterile. So when I say it's sterile, that means it's free from any bacteria. So for example, inside of your veins, sterile. Inside of your bladder where your urine is, yes, that's sterile. There should be no bacteria present in the bladder. There should be no bacteria present in the heart, in the lungs. You know, these are all sterile cavities. And so if we're talking about putting a catheter in a central vein that is sterile, how much do we need to monitor that? You know, and, and, and so we can't take things lightly when we insert a, a urinary catheter because you're inserting it into a sterile space. That's why we have to use all that betadine. You know, when we insert an IV, sometimes, and you know, as nurses, we get, we get very casual in the things that we do, but we are supposed to do our patients no harm. And little things like a catheter can really cause a patient to, um, to suffer okay, suffer serious hospital complications. So speaking of blood drawing and laboratory catheters and you know sterile spaces in the veins, what are the TPN lab requirements? What blood samples need to be drawn? And so uh, daily you would do a capillary glucose reading. Yeah, a capillary glucose reading. And we know that that is the indication of her um, her or him, I'm sorry, uh, of her blood glucose levels. 
Weekly, you would do uh, a sodium level, and I'm sorry you guys got to write all this down, but it is helpful, and you need to know the abbreviations of each one of these, so I shouldn't even really say them, but I, I'm trusting that you know them. You need to do a sodium, a potassium, a chloride, a BUN, a creatinine, right? a calcium, magnesium, hemoglobin, hematocrit, white blood cell count for your patient, liver functions, and triglycerides because you're getting all of your nutrition from this solution. And so your electrolytes can be altered very quickly. And I have here underneath all of those laboratory values that in the beginning of your treatment, you're gonna get these, these um, blood draws every day. Yeah, you're gonna get these blood draws every day. And then once you're maintained on the TPN, they'll do them weekly. And then monthly, monthly, because total parental nutrition can uh, reduce like your bone mineralization, you gotta get a bone density test if you are, um, if you're on it longer than three months or if you haven't maintained adequate nutrition over three months. Okay, all right. Okay, so TPN, presented to you um, as, as uh, simply as I possibly could in order for you to be proficient for your board exams. Now, I'm telling you, if you have your um, virtual trainer workbook, I also go over TPN, giving you another perspective of this medical treatment. So I am excited to see how you put both of them together and have this amazing understanding. But for right now, it's time for our questions because we did the content. So the first question coming at you is all about TPN, it's all about nutrition, right? Um, is this, it says, the nurse is caring for a client who requires supplemental nutrition. The client is only consuming 10% of their daily requirements orally. Which of the following is the most appropriate form of nutrition at this time? Is it number one, a liquid diet with a smooth consistency? Two, tube feeding. Three, peripheral, parenteral nutrition. Or four, total parenteral nutrition. Hmm, this will make you think Go ahead and go with your first mind. What is the most appropriate form of nutrition for this patient? It is going to be, yeah, it's gonna be the tube feeding. Why is it the tube feeding? Well, simply this. What does this client have that they're eating orally? They have a functioning GI tract. And because of that, because they are functioning, um, they have, because they have a functioning GI tract, because they're eating orally, um, then I know that number three and number four are not gonna be appropriate for them, okay? Anybody that can eat orally, I don't wanna introduce TPN for them. Now it says the client is only consuming, so they're only eating 10% of their daily requirements. Now I don't, I don't know, it could be a dentures problem, they could have a tooth abscess, I don't know, they could have sores, a locked jaw, whatever but I know that they have the ability to eat. So 
I am going to bypass their mouth and I'm going to get that food right to where it needs to go to. So I'm going to do that with a tube feeding through the nose. Uh, if I have to go through the stomach, I don't think I do, but tube feeding is going to be the next step. All right. For this client, the liquid diet, uh, with a smooth consistency, I'm not going to try to give them more oral foods. If I know that they're not meeting their requirements on an oral diet alone, I need to escalate it. I need to prepare for the doctor to say, what is the next level? Cause sometimes the doctor will ask you as the nurse. Okay. So I hope that one is clear. I hope we can all agree on that one. Number two is, um, it's a bit tougher. It's a bit tougher. And I, I was so happy when I wrote it because I was like, this is going to cause them to think. So number two says the healthcare provider informs the nurse that a client's food must be pre digested as a part of the nutritional plan. Which of the following food options would be most appropriate? Select all that apply. Okay. All right. So is it number one, mashed potatoes Two, ensure ready to drink nutritional shake three, a mechanical soft blended meal plan for Jevity 1.2 calorie high protein intro nutrition with fiber or five clinamix with electrolytes parenteral central line infusion okay so here we are talking about a solution that is pre-digested. The patient needs food that's pre-digested. So what would that be? And this is select all that apply. So one or more could be correct. One or more. All right. So, 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 so the correct answer here, because we're looking for a food that is pre-digested, that means it doesn't have to have any contact with the GI tract to absorb it the stomach of their intestines. The only solution is going to be number five, the parenteral central line. It is pre-digested. It is ready to go. The body can use it as it is. Everything else, the mashed potatoes has to go through the gastrointestinal tract. That nutritional shake is oral. Gotta get it through the GI tract. Uh, the, the, the mechanical soft blended food is a meal plan. Nope. And then even the intro nutrition, it has to go through the stomach into the small intestine. So number five, one answer is correct. All right. Okay. Let's do number three. Shall we? Are you guys ready for three? All right. Okay. I know that was a good question. I really, uh, I really challenged you guys with that one. Three. The nurse is caring for a client who started total parental nutrition 10 days ago. The client has experienced a one kilogram per day weight gain. Which of the following should the nurse expect? Okay. All right. Um, number one, liver failure. Two, fluid overload. Three, renal failure. Or four, dehydration. 
Okay, and I love this. Um, it's not a follow-up education. It is simply um, a nurse being able to evaluate what's happening, all right, to their patient. What do you think about um, this client? What are they experiencing? The nurse should absolutely expect fluid overload. That's right, that's right, fluid overload. Okay, because the client is getting some additional fluids. Now, you guys know, you guys know how I love um, NCLEX activities. So I put an, an NCLEX activity page in your workbook. So I wanna do it with you. Let's go, all right? And so essentially with this NCLEX activity page, and um, I put it in here. So based off of the client's information, which nutrition is going to be best? All right, so this is another way that I like to challenge my Remar nurses to determine that they are competent in the subject. So we have here, the requirement is, we're looking for a reduced risk of infection or sepsis. So what is gonna be better, intro nutrition or TPN? What well, say it, you guys? Write it down right now. Share this video if you love NCLEX activities. All right, um, so intro nutrition, of course, is going to be better, is going to be better for our patient. Now, number two says this. If we want a large variety of formula choices, what is gonna be best? Is it intro or is it TPN? <laughs> the correct answer is yes, intro nutrition. There are so many types of formula choices for intro nutrition. It is going to be best for your patient here. Number three says this, which one reduces GI tube obstruction? All right, um, gastrointestinal tube obstruction. Well, that is going to be, yes, the TPN because it will totally eliminate the need for the gastrointestinal tract. So if you have complications there, you'll wanna go to TPN. Four. Hey, you guys know this one, I told you several times, which one provides complete nutritional support? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is going to be TPN, yes, total, total, it's total, parenteral nutrition. Five says, which one is best for short-term use? Which one is gonna be best for short-term use? And for short-term use, it's going to be TPN. TPN, although it can provide you all the nutrients you need, it is very hard on the body, particularly the liver that now has to metabolize food. You guys know that's not the liver's job, okay? So it's hard on the body, it causes so many complications, possibly for your patient, that we don't want them on it very long. Number six is, which one is gonna be best for a client who has a facial trauma? Hmm, which one is gonna be best for a client with a facial trauma? Well, you know what that's gonna be? That's gonna be enteral nutrition, yes. Because guess what this patient has? Even if your face is totally smashed in, guess what you still have? A functioning GI tract. If your gastrointestinal tract is working, I'm not giving you TPN. You can get a G-tube, you can get a J-tube, you can eat through enteral nutrition. All right, so I hope that makes sense. 
Number seven, if the client has a lower spinal cord injury, let me tell you something else, it will also be nutrition. yes. And actually, there's been studies that show that patients with spinal cord injury, lower spinal cord injuries, they actually do better when their nutrition is started sooner than later, all right? Um, and so it helps them to keep their protein levels up and it's just, it's, it's a very, very valuable option for them. Okay. Number eight says the client with small bowel transplantation. All right. Your small bowel has been transplanted. What do you think is going to be best for you? Yeah. For this one, for TPN, TPN on a short term basis is going to be best for this patient. All right. Number nine says, hey, the client is terminally ill, but they're requesting nutritional support because they, they believe they can make a recovery. So they, they want the nutritional support. They think they're going to recover. What's going to be best for them? It'll be the intro nutrition. All right. And, I, and our choices are intro and TPN here. So don't say oral. It's intro or TPN. All right. So intro nutrition is going to be best for this patient. Okay. And then number 10, Hey, client is expected to have liver failure. Oh my goodness. What do we want to put this patient on? We want to put this patient on a intro nutrition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you guys should be feeling extra confident now about your oral anti-diabetics, your insulins and your TPNs. We have been talking about how to keep our patients maintained through medical interventions, but it's not over yet because this year is all about you getting your license and I'm going to help you do that. So if you're feeling confident, if you're feeling ready to take on the NCLEX beast, let me help you get the other half of the way with the content from the test plan. Pharmacology, you can dominate it. Let's dominate the rest of the subjects that will be on your NCLEX exam. I can't wait for our next class and of course to see you with your license. But now I'm gonna take you inside of our virtual trainer, just like I promised. So I have taken a page out of our NCLEX virtual trainer student workbook and put it in your downloadable workbook. So when we go inside the virtual trainer, you will be able to see what it's like to study with the full comprehensive NCLEX review. You can get this program done in three to six weeks. Let's check it out. Therapeutic diets are really important to know for your exam. We're going to talk about several kinds of diets, the reason why patients are prescribed them, and the foods that they can or cannot have. Let's start with the easiest diet, the NPO or nothing by mouth diet. The reason why patients are prescribed to be NPO is to prevent aspiration before surgery. So if you're going for a surgical procedure and you happen to get nauseated by the anesthesia or the stress of the procedure, if you don't have anything in your stomach, you're less likely to aspirate. Another reason why patients can be prescribed NPO is to have bowel rest. That means you give your intestines a break from constantly digesting food. When it comes to the food, you cannot have anything by mouth. This is very important 
for nursing students to remember because NPO means NPO. That means no food, no medications, no water, nothing by mouth. The next diet is the clear liquid diet. The indication for this diet is to prevent dehydration. Liquids that are acceptable in the clear liquid diet are water, juices, see-through broths, gelatin, coffee, and tea. The next diet is the full liquid diet. The full liquid diet is also used to prevent dehydration, but it's not the first diet after surgery. You have the clear liquids first, and then you move to a full liquid if you can tolerate the liquid clear diet. Now, in the full liquid diet, the liquids, you cannot see through them. So, our food examples are ice cream, milk, puddings. These are liquids that have an opaque color. You can't see through them. Um, hot cereals can also be included in the full liquid diet, such as uh, wheat cereals or oatmeal can be made to a liquid consistency. The next diet is the puree diet. This diet is for small babies or clients who are unable to chew, clients who have dysphagia. So chewing and swallowing are very difficult. Now for the puree diet, any food that can be blended or mashed to a smooth consistency is acceptable. Now, a nursing point is even if a patient is on a puree diet and they're able to have several different foods, you want to keep those foods separate when feeding them. Just because a client is on a puree diet, that doesn't mean that we're going to mix mashed potatoes and peas and carrots all into one dish and serve them. For NCLEX, you wanna keep each one of those foods separately when feeding your patient for the value of the taste of the food. If the food doesn't taste good because it's all mixed together, then the client more than likely won't eat it. The next diet is the mechanical soft diet. This diet is really popular for patients who have difficulty chewing specifically. Perhaps they have poor fitted dentures or missing teeth, or they cannot chew their food thoroughly. So when it comes to the mechanical soft diet, again, any food that can be easily broken down for the patient can be included, but no nuts or no seeds can ever be considered a mechanical soft diet. The bland diet is next. This diet is used to decrease gastric irritation or discomfort. So bland foods are all about keeping the stomach calm. So for example, clients who have ulcers of the stomach or clients who have a lot of stomach acid production we give them the bland diet alternative. When it comes to 
bland foods, there's a lot of grains and vegetables that you can have. So what I wanna focus on is what you cannot have. And for the bland diet, you cannot have any fatty, fried, or spicy food. Also, you need to avoid CAP. And CAP stands for caffeine, alcohol, and peppers. Our protein restricted diet is next. Protein restriction is all for our renal patients. I want you to remember that combination. And the food that you need to avoid are animal products. So meats, poultry or chicken and fish. Does anyone know what is really the problem with animal foods? And why do our renal patients, why do our renal patients have a hard time with protein? Can you think? Well, let me tell you. When you eat an animal product and it is not broken down and it is not excreted out of your body, then that animal product will begin to ferment in the body. And so what happens is the animal product turns into ammonia and ammonia is a toxin for our body. So if a patient has a compromised renal system, then they're not able to filter out all of the ammonia. And so the patients will start to become sick and they will start to be confused as the ammonia levels in their body increases. So clients who have renal issues, we tell them to avoid those animal products um, and make sure that they have a very tight control on how much protein that they're getting. Sodium restricted are for our heart patients. We all know that limiting the sodium intake is heart healthy. And so what you may see is a two gram or a one gram sodium restricted diet. For the sodium restricted diet, clients need to avoid canned food because canned meats and canned soups they use salt as a preservative to keep the food safe. So again, for a client who's trying to avoid sodium, they have to stay away from food in cans, also frozen food or salted food, again, tends to be high in sodium. The next diet is the high fiber diet. The reason why a patient is on a high fiber diet is to prevent constipation. Think about our clients who are on bed rest or immobile, they tend to be constipated, so the high fiber diet would really help them. The high fiber foods include whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. Low purine is used for our clients with gout, and gout is a form of arthritis. Now, if you need to avoid foods that have purine in them, I want you to think of seafood. Seafood is super high in purine, so clients who have gout or on a low purine diet should avoid fish, scallops, sardines, and anchovies. The next diet is the high protein diet. This diet is for our elderly clients and also our clients who have burns on their skin. Just like we were talking about low protein, 
High protein foods include red meat, fish, and beans. So this will be the focus of the high protein diet. Many of us are familiar with the diabetic diet. It's the next one. The indication is to control blood glucose levels. You know, for NCLEX, the diabetic diet is really a healthy diet with a variety of foods. But specifically for our diabetic patients, we need to teach them that 50% of their meals should be carbohydrates. And the reason why good carbohydrates are recommended is because carbohydrates help keep the blood sugar stable for a long period of time, as opposed to proteins or fats. So 50% of their meal should be a carbohydrate. 20% should be a protein and about 30% should be a fat, 30% or less. Diabetic clients should avoid simple sugars such as pastries, candies, that instance. You definitely want to know about celiac's diet. The indication for the celiac's diet is to avoid gluten. Clients need to be on a gluten-free diet and gluten is actually a protein found in most grains. So for NCLEX, clients should avoid the grain that has the acronym BROW, B-R-O-W. Have you heard that before? BROW stands for barley, rye, oats, and wheat. Barley, rye, oats, and wheat. But you know what, NCLEX, they're not gonna ask you about barley, rye, oats, and wheat. They're gonna say, can your client with celiac disease have bread? What are you gonna say? You're gonna say, no, absolutely not, because bread comes from wheat. They're gonna ask you, can your client have spaghetti? And you're gonna have to say, no, because spaghetti comes from wheat as well. It's a pasta, it comes from wheat. They're gonna ask you if your client can have a pie. If they asked about pie, what are you gonna say? You're gonna say no, because the crust of that pie has gluten in it. It's the same for cookies. No to cookies, no to waffles, no to pancakes, all right? So everything has to be gluten-free for this patient. Well, those are our therapeutic diets for the exam. Let's keep studying. Um, while we have a minute for interlude, just want to run over this. Remember with the virtual trainer, I really would want you guys to look at the study calendar that is in your file vault because it will help you to incorporate quick facts and the virtual trainer together. Um, there is a lot of information in the book, quick facts, and then there's a lot of information here. And so what I did in the study calendar was I tried to show you guys how you can study both of these together. Okay, how you can study both of these together and it will make um, the process a lot 
faster. We have people that have studied the virtual trainer in three weeks and, and have gotten their license. I wrote the program for it to be a six week program. If you follow the calendar, you're only studying four days a week. If you are studying more, <laughs> more than four days a week, you can certainly get through this. So I'm telling you guys, it is going to be a fantastic opportunity to get your nursing license. We are getting ready to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Did you know that NCLEX is changing? It absolutely is. And I want you to be ready for it. You gotta be ready now to take the current NCLEX or you're gonna have to learn about all these changes. Either way, I got time for it. What is going to be different about the next generation NCLEX? Well, there are many things. This is part three of me going over what is gonna be different, but today I'm going to specifically focus on the new question formats that are coming. So, and, and this is the thing, if you are taking next generation NCLEX, you can see literally all of the new questions throughout your exam. And also, as a reminder, you may want to know that the current NCLEX items will still be present on the exam as well. We are talking about a marriage between the current NCLEX and next generation. So what do I mean by the items? For example, there's going to be an enhanced hotspot. So we looked at highlighting that can be done in the context of a paragraph or a table, meaning, um, you know, what do you identify as irregular, abnormal about this, this scenario, this situation? Another item could be, you know, the extended multiple response. And this is very significant because usually with select all that apply, we are thinking, okay, there's gonna be five item options and no more. But with this extended multiple response, we are going to be seeing uh, 10 choices, right? Up to 10 choices, and you are gonna to have to select everyone that applies or a number, a specific number that applies. So maybe they say select six of the important findings or select two of the important findings or select nine of the important findings. I don't know, but they'll give you the number. And then also grouping, grouping items to dictate whether they are correct or incorrect. So these are new. Uh, we also have the extended drag and drop, extended drag and drop formations. And we can see these in the close style question formation or um, in a rationale uh, format where X equals Y, right? So uh, diabetes mellitus equals um, hyperglycemia, polyuria, a drag and drop in that formation, or we can see it in a table presentation, which we have not seen yet. Um, I love the next one. It's, this is called a bow tie question. And with the bow tie questions, you're going to be looking at the six steps in um, the clinical judgment measurement model. 
that are going to be actionable for a nursing student. Constructed responses are also going to be um, seen because you're going to be giving, you're going to be giving the appropriate reaction for the action that is presented to you. And of course, the matrix grid where you have uh, radio style buttons and multiple responses and or just a basic multiple choice in this presentation. So lots of new question types that you um, should be expected to be able to clear. Your nursing school right now should be presenting these to you, explaining them to you. Um, I'm excited for um, to see curriculum changes, to see increased critical thinking and more co collaboration among educators, because these are all going to be very real, very real. All of these are going to be very real um, items for the NCLEX exam. So introducing next generation, I love to give you a sample question type so that you can see. So here is our first, here is our first presentation. And this is the question. Okay. And this could be presented in a case study form or um, really just a regular standalone question, but let's read it together. So there's a time marker here. Time is going to be um, very prevalent on the next generation NCLEX because you might be looking for changes in your patient throughout a certain time reference. So at 10.15, what do we have? JD, a 26-year-old male, presents to the emergency department in a wheelchair with abdominal guarding. He reports a sudden onset of right lower quadrant abdominal pain accompanied by nausea and vomiting a few hours ago at work. He could not find a comfortable position as he was asked to lie down in the observation area. The pain worsens each time I move, he verbalized. At 11 o'clock, the nurse assesses the client and notes the following. Blood pressure, 110 over 80. Pulse rate, 98 beats per minute. Respiration, 19. Temperature, 38.3 degrees Celsius. Pain scale, 8 out of 10. Um, negative bowel sounds plus uh, positive abdominal distension. So the question is number one, which top findings need further investigation. Select all that apply. Is it number one, right lower quadrant abdominal pain, two, discomfort, three, pain scale, four, pain worsening with activity, five, nausea and vomiting, six, difficulty in ambulation, seven, vital signs. So we're looking for the top findings. We're looking for the top findings that need further investigation. All right. And remember, this is an extended multiple uh, response question. And so with this, there's also partial scoring. So let's see um, if you got it right. The correct answers are as follows. Number one, number three, number five, and number seven. All right. So why is that correct? Number one, we are thinking 
right lower quadrant abdominal pain is definitely an abnormal assessment. And so the thing about next generation NCLEX is that you're gonna have these um, keywords like top or most, right? And so that means that the others are very, they're very, they're very real, but are they the most relevant? So we are going to pick the pain scale to be addressed because discomfort is a very general term that is not, um, that is not going to be explored, right? So of course, if a patient has right lower abdominal pain, that is going to be more appropriate as a need for further investigation than general discomfort, right? Um, the pain scale is irregular, right? The pain scale for this patient is irregular. Um, the pain worsening with activity, that is, um, that is, uh, what, what do we call that? That is a byproduct of the right lower quadrant abdominal pain. So we need to address the right lower quadrant abdominal pain, right? That is going to be the the main source of the issue. Pain worsening with activity, well, that just it, it makes sense that that would be a part of the issue, but it's not considered a top finding. Nausea and vomiting. Nausea and vomiting is very relevant because um, if there is right left quadrant abdominal pain, as well as nausea and vomiting, that is going to be a correlation that something further may be happening with your patient. Um, that And you guys, as I continue on this train of thought, you all should be thinking of a diagnosis right now. Right now, based off of what you've been presented, you have enough to know what may be going on with this patient, right? Um, difficulty with ambulation, that's not something that was um, really brought out except for the fact that he was in a wheelchair with abdominal guarding, but that's just the same kind of like as discomfort. So yes, right lower quadrant abdominal pain, you are going to have difficulty with walking, but it's not going to be the ambulation that needs to be explored more so than the pain, right? And so um, vital signs also, we're going to want to know more about this patient because re remember, pain is considered part of your typical vital signs. You need to address that, right? We also need to know more about the patient. Um, are there, are there, um, are there going to be more issues with the blood pressure? Is that the normal blood pressure for this patient? Um, the respirations, we're going to want to watch them. We're going to want to monitor them more, right? And so we're going to include the vital signs as part of our further investigation for this new patient. And remember, guys, with case studies or um, uh, uh, questions that could be in the format of a case study, you're going to be following this patient over a certain period of time. So it would be who of you to gather as much assessment information about this patient as possible, especially on the very first question. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about that in our next video. Let's go on and do another question here. What possible, thinking about the patient that we saw here, what possible conditions could the client be having? And um, this presentation is going to be um, a, a multiple matrix, all right? So you're going to have columns here and you are going to have to click, it says click to click to the client findings 
that are consistent with a given set of diagnosis. So each finding may support more than one diagnosis. So this is very important in analyzing the cues. Based off of what we've been given about this patient, it could be a urinary tract infection, pancreatitis, or appendicitis. These are the three differential diagnoses that could possibly um, come into play with this patient. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the symptoms and we're going to say, is this a urinary tract infection? Is this pancreatitis? And this, is this appendicitis? So you have to be ready and willing to do those things. All right. This is where I'm telling you guys, you have to know the content, get into the, and that's why we're doing the quick, the quick facts is going to be a great place for you to start. And then the virtual trainer is going to help you to review, um, this information and, 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 and in a very real way, be prepared to be fully examined about what you know. So fever, do you see that in urinary tract infection? Do you see that in pancreatitis? Or do you see that in appendicitis? And if fever applies to all three, the intentions for NCLEX is that you are going to check the box in all three. If it doesn't, then you would only check the box in what it would apply to. Nausea and vomiting. Are you gonna see that in a urinary tract infection? Are you gonna see that in pancreatitis? Are you gonna see that in appendicitis? And so this is what you have to do. And remember, um, this is a partial scoring as well. So the, the choices that you get correct, you'll get credit for. Um, and then the choices that may hinder you if you don't get them correct on the next generation, they can actually take points away from you. So if we were just doing this, um, yes, you're gonna have fever in all three of them. What about nausea and vomiting? Right. Uh, do you see that in the urinary tract infection, pancreatitis or appendicitis? OK, you can see that in all three of them. All right. So this is what you're going to have to be uh, ready to do. All right. The, the right lower quadrant abdominal pain, that is going to be a marker specifically for appendicitis. Did you know that? What about abdominal distension? Where would you expect to see that at? OK, so as you are reading these uh, these questions, you have about two minutes to determine what the correct answer is. Abdominal distension, pancreatitis, appendicitis, absent bowel sounds, pancreatitis, and appendicitis. So if you're just studying pancreatitis, you better know the difference between appendicitis now, between the two of them, and a urinary tract infection or anything else that they could have put here. All right, this is a question that is a very good question in determining what a student knows and what they don't know. And it's just little fine differences. All right, so are you ready for this next generation NCLEX? If your school did not prepare you for this and you can take NCLEX now, you need to be doing all you can to take your NCLEX exam right now. Okay, I cannot stress this enough. Um, this third presentation is an example of a... Um, a drop down close formation. So this is how I chose to present it to you guys. Um, so we're talking about JD here. JD is most likely experiencing, and so this is a fill in the blank basically. What would you say based off of his symptoms? Is he experiencing a UTI, pancreatitis or appendicitis? What do you guys think? Okay. And then, um, so this is a choice with three options that you have to get correct. So this is the XYZ choice, right? Um, the emergency room nurse must prioritize which of the following. What would you choose? Preparing the client for surgery, 
giving antiemetics or measuring intake and output? What is going to be the best answer for this slot here? And then to prevent the highest risk of, what are we worried about? All right, what are we worried about? Abdominal distension, fluid and electrolyte imbalance, or ruptured appendicitis. What are we gonna be worried about? And the correct choices here is you would have to pick these. Um, and again, this could be a drag and drop or it could be a drop down click. I, you know, it depends on how they want to present it to you. But JD is most likely experiencing appendicitis. The emergency room nurse must prioritize preparing the client for surgery to prevent the highest risk of ruptured appendicitis. Okay. All right, guys. So this is another look at how NCLEX is changing. Are you prepared for it? Are you prepared for this exam? If you are not and you want to take it, get ready. Okay. Um, here's another here is another um, grouping. This is actually a grouping response. And so let's read what the question says. For each area of nursing responsibility, identify which nursing actions are contraindicated in JD's case. Each area may have more than one contraindicated nursing action. So I, I literally, when I wrote this question, I have, um, I have actually uh, many segments more than this, but I'm just presenting you these two. So assessment, um, which one would you check? Monitor vital signs and pain scale. Assess pain, severity, and location by palpating all quadrants of the abdomen. Ask about the onset of present illness. Check client hypersensitivity to medications. Okay, so do you have your answers there? Which one are you going to check? And then what about the pain or discomfort management? Administering analgesics round the clock until the client is pain free. Encouraging deep breathing exercises as tolerated. Encourage warm compress heating pads on the affected site for natural pain relief or assist client into a semi-fowler's position as tolerated. What say if you guys, and remember here, uh, there's many, many more responsibilities that we could have gotten into, nutrition, activity, all kinds of things. But for um, these two that I selected, uh, for assessment, the only thing we would be not doing is contraindicated is assessing pain, severity, and location by palpation. You don't want to do that. And you need to be able to noti notify that that is incorrect. And then also for pain and discomfort, we are not going to administer round the clock um, until the client is pain free. We should be doing the, the pain management as the client requests. Okay. Um, and then also encouraging warm compress. We do not want to do a warm, warm compress for appendicitis. And if you don't know why, I definitely want you to look it up. All right. If you have the potential to take and pass NCLEX now, let's do it. But if not, we will continue to prepare for next generation NCLEX. However, I am doing my due diligence. I am encouraging you as your NCLEX instructor right now is the best time and opportunity to take the NCLEX exam and get your nursing license. There is not a better time coming. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you guys, 
do not waste an opportunity to test now. All right. Um, so if you're able to test now this year, do it. And then let me show you how to do it. Let me show you how to do it and passing your board in the next four to six weeks or less with my Inclex virtual trainer straight for you. So if you are ready to get your nursing license, this is the opportunity. You can, you will, you must pass NCLEX because with God, it's possible. All right. Hey, that is our segment. NCLEX is definitely changing, but don't worry about it. We are going to get you prepared to pass the NCLEX now, or I'm going to prepare you for the changes. So check out our next episode of Remart Nurse University. Part four is coming up next Monday, again at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Thank you. Hey, what are you waiting for? I wanna see you on the inside. This is the opportunity. You don't wanna miss it. If your nursing license is important to you, you will take action right now. Let's click the link, let's go. Hey guys, I'm Courtney. I am officially a Remar nurse and I did the six week challenge. I watched the videos three or four times and I really, really liked them. I feel like they really helped me. I took notes, I read the rationales, I answered them again. I did anything and everything possible that I could. I'm just so happy to have found it and to officially be a Remar nurse. Okay, okay, calm down. I am now a nurse and I'd like to say thank you so much for giving us the content and content really does matter. So thank you so much and I'll see you for all right. <laughs> Bye. Hi Regina. Hi Wilmar crew. Hi Wilmar nurses. My name is Grislyn Dennett. I'm from Haiti. I've been here in the U.S. for 12 years. I studied as a CNA for five, um, for six months, PCT, LPN for five years. Um, I went to take my test last week. I took two weeks off from work, studied a virtual trainer. I didn't really do a lot of questions like Regina said. I just, I was focused on content. Most questions that I did is only the one in virtual trainer. The day I went to take my test, I pray. I said, God, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to lean on your own understanding. And I said, God, I'm leaving my home as an LPN, but I'm coming back as a um, RN. I went in my car, took my stuff, went in my car. I prayed and then I called my husband. I was crying. My husband was like, why are you crying? Don't you know who God is? Um, you did your part. You studied. So now let God do his part. I'm like, okay then. So from the place to my home in my car, I was praying, worshiping God. I did not do the trick. No, I was scared. So I waited for two days. I went on person view. Pay for the quick result and guess what when i saw the word pass i went crazy i went crazy um i was running in my home in my house crying like a mad woman i'm telling you but god did it god intervened i'm telling you we more is the key content is the key listen to what regina said i'm telling you she, she was right if you don't know your content you won't be able to answer those questions i was i'm telling you i was able to answer most of the question because of remark because of regina because she took her time to explain every details regina you were a 
awesome. You are great. You are the best of the best. Thank you so much for your time, for your patience. I want to tell you right now, I'm asking God to bless you, to bless your family, to bless your ministry, to give you strength. Don't ever, uh, don't get discouraged. Let me tell you, because you are blessing a lot of people. You are blessing a lot of people out there. I'm telling you. Thank you so much. And Wimor nurses, do not get discouraged. Continue to study, focus, follow Wimor. Virtual trainer is the key. I'm telling you, it's the key. And then remember, with God, nothing, nothing is impossible. Pray and study, and you will see. If I can do it, you can do it. Okay? Love you guys. Take care. The NCLEX Virtual Trainer is the best training system for nursing students who need to pass the exam. My name is Regina Callion, MSNRN, and I have helped thousands of nursing students pass the NCLEX exam with my program. You're going to love it. With my NCLEX review, I'm going to give you all of my nursing content in one place. Not only that, I'm going to make sure that after every individual lesson, you know what is most important. And if you need questions to help you, I have the questions right here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an amazing opportunity to get in the virtual trainer. I'm also going to sing you the virtual trainer student workbook, as well as my quick facts for NCLEX. This is it. This is the opportunity that you've been waiting for. Click the link below. This is the number one training system for nursing students who need to pass NCLEX. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Click the link below. I want to know, thank you guys for rocking with Mark and I uh, until, you know, hours <laughs> to, to get this information. Again, I am going to um, take some questions that I saw here. Um, when you're in the virtual trainer, let me just say this. You got a preview of the virtual trainer from our perspective, just showing you the video. But when you're inside of the VT, you have complete control over those videos. So you can speed them up. You can slow them down. You could put in the closed captioning if you want to see every word that I'm saying. So, um, you know, it is your NCLEX review, and I want you guys to make it your own. Get in the virtual trainer, learn how to use it for your benefit, because we put a lot of features in there that will allow you to retain the information more, okay? Please put the email address up there for people who don't know it. It's support at remarreview.com, all right? support at remarreview.com okay you guys we love you so much we love you so much good night good night to you guys um and since i answered the questions we will definitely make sure we will definitely make sure that we are on again bye Hey Remar Nurses, my name is Latasha Gibson and I would like to share my experience using the virtual trainer and the quick facts for NCLEX book. I used the virtual trainer for six weeks. There was a schedule provided with it. I stayed on the schedule the whole six weeks. I also used the quick facts book. I took that book everywhere with me and I memorized the whole book before I actually took my NCLEX exam. Shortly after the virtual trainer program ended, I registered to take my NCLEX and I passed on my first time in 75 questions. I did have a lot of select all that apply, which can range from one answer choice to all. Um, I currently work in a step down ICU unit and with prayers and a lot of studying, you can, you will, and you must pass NCLEX. Good luck. The NCLEX Virtual Trainer is the best training system 
for nursing students who need to pass the exam. My name is Regina Callion, MSN RN, and I have helped thousands of nursing students pass the NCLEX exam with my program. You're gonna love it. With my NCLEX review, I'm going to give you all of my nursing content in one place. Not only that, I'm gonna make sure that after every individual lesson, you know what is most important. And if you need questions to help you, I have the questions right here. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you an amazing opportunity to get in the virtual trainer. I'm also gonna sing you the virtual trainer student workbook, as well as my quick facts for NCLEX. This is it. This is the opportunity that you've been waiting for. Click the link below. This is the number one training system for nursing students who need to pass NCLEX. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Click the link below. Hey, what are you waiting for? I want to see you on the inside. This is the opportunity. You don't want to miss it. If your nursing license is important to you, you will take action right now. Let's click the link. Let's go. Got a question for us? Head to readmynurse.com and let's have a chat or go to the FAQ page for swift answers. You can also email us at support at and we'll be happy to address your NCLEX needs and concerns. Every Monday, Regina offers live and online reviews. Even this live will be available online for your studying purposes. If you're unable to watch the live reviews, you can tune in to Remar Nurse Radio on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and more. Don't forget, tag us to your social media. Later, guys. You can, you will, you must pass NCLEX.